Welcome to the Momversations Project, brought to you by the National Women's Theater Festival. Momversations, mothers reclaiming tough conversations about the messy and the beautiful realities of their lives. I'm your host, Molly Clausen. Today's guest is Katie Mohammedian. Katie is a mother of two and a third grade teacher. In this Momversation, she shares her story of her preterm baby born on the verge of what is considered viable and having to make the impossible decision whether to take medically extreme measures to save her baby or to let her baby pass peacefully. Thanks for being a part of the Momversation. I love you, Mommy. Mama, Mama, Mama. <laughs> The Momversations Project. Guess what? What? I farted. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Momversations Project. Thanks for, for meeting with me. We have here today Katie Mohammedian. And Katie, you are a mom of two and a third grade teacher. Yep. Which is awesome. Surrounded by children. <laughs> all the time. All the time. <laughs> Can't get enough. <laughs> um, so tell me, well, how old are your kids? Sure. So I have my daughter, Emmy, and she's three years old. She turned three in October. And then my son, Milo, is five months. He was born in June. So tell me about your your process in becoming pregnant and mm -hmm. starting on that journey. What was that process like for you? Yeah, well, I'm like a super type A personality, so like it was planned. <laughs> um, so uh, my husband and I have been together for, I don't know, for like many years. We were married in 2013 and then, uh, gosh, we, you know, we always wanted kids, but it was just kind of like, you know, we enjoyed being us and being a couple yeah, and, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So waited till um, I was uh, 30 and then we're like, okay, yeah, you know, I think we're ready. Like we're ready to try this. And so we went at it with like a timed approach, like figuring out <laughs> ovulation and like knowing, you know, all that stuff. It was thankfully a very easy process for us to get pregnant. I think the second month of trying and, and we were pregnant and that Excellent. was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, that was kind of how it happened for me as well. Luckily, I thought it was going to be oh yeah this huge process. You know, you hear how it can take so long. Yeah. And Getting pregnant was not the problem. <laughs> that, was not, that was not my issue. So tell me like in those early stages of pregnancy, so yeah. you find out you're pregnant and everything and your body starts to change. What was like, what was that like for you? Was there anything that happened that was surprising, good, bad, indifferent? No, honestly, it was like completely normal. Oh, really? Textbook, like, okay, here's what you feel, you know, morning sickness, stuff like that. I was pretty sick. I mean, from five weeks until 11 weeks, something like that. But I, otherwise, I was fine. It's a pretty healthy time in my life. I, I'm a runner and I, you know, a half marathoner and I like, you know, to exercise, that sort of thing. And so I continue to exercise through that time and eating really well. We have this garden in our yard and it was like, you know, eating all of our organic vegetables that summer. Yeah. And I was reading every book about pregnancy that I could. Because again, type <laughs> A personality, like how do you go into an unknown situation? You prepare, like you study for it and you prepare yourself. So. Right. 
Right. You know, I knew like what to expect every single month and, you know, like I, I was, I was ready for it. So no, but otherwise- Calling the fruits along. Oh like. yeah, totally. And I definitely was the person taking pictures of myself in the mirror, mm-hmm. marking the weeks and that sort of thing. This is the first grandkid on my side of the family. So um, very special for my parents and, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, sorry. There's like screaming happening. <laughs> you know, because you're a mom and that's yeah. what it's like. So. Yeah. 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 Mom's not giving the bath tonight. So they're screaming. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like everything's going is according to plan, how you yeah. thought, you know, and pretty easy. It sounds yeah, like. Super so easy. Far. Yeah. It was, it was definitely that way. I think at one point, Around eight weeks, I had like one little bit of spotting and I went in and they did a, an ultrasound, a transvaginal ultrasound. And they're like, oh, baby's good. And that was our first image actually of Emmy yeah. um, was was after that. And But otherwise, no. I mean, it was like oh, nothing to worry about. Yeah. And then I know you actually did end up having quite a tough pregnancy. So what happened? So we went in for a 20-week scan mm-hmm. and – it was great that we found out uh, the gender because again, type A. I gotta know like what this baby, <laughs> you know, and um, uh-huh. it it uh, truly didn't matter to us either way. But we just wanted to, to kind of get a preview and so prepare for prepare right. for stuff. Yeah, I, <laughs> there was like a, a neonatologist. It was one of the perinatologists that was on call there. Um, she stopped in to look, and it was it was like interesting because she came and she's like. You know, she always scans like the the scans that are coming in. She's mm-hmm. like, your baby has like these perfect proportions. It's just perfect. And we were just like, oh, wow. You know, our baby has perfect proportions. <laughs> um, but everything was fine. Everything was fine. And then um, a week later, at 21 weeks, I started experiencing some spotting. It got worse. I, again, I was running a couple times a week. It, I would notice it a lot more. Then it would be like, you know, pink or kind of brownish or whatever. And so I, you know, I'm trying to be like, okay, not, not freak out, but, you know, do my due diligence. And so I contacted my midwife clinic and I just said, hey, this is what mm-hmm. I, I'm experiencing. Like, do I need to come in? And they're like, well, you know, actually it's really normal. It can be really normal mm-hmm. during pregnancy mm-hmm. and, and, you know, just monitor it. It like haunted me in the you know last couple of years. Part mm-hmm. of my healing process was like kind of letting this go, but like looking back at these messages back and forth and me saying, "Hey, I think there's I think there's something wrong. It's it feels like a little bit you know a little bit." And they're like, "Well, is it soaking up pad? No, it's not. Um, mm-hmm. Is it you know really bright red? No, it's not." So we just kind of monitored it. And some days it'd be less, and some days it'd be virtually nothing, and other days it was a little bit you know, more. And then um, mm. as week 21 went into week 22, um, as I would run, I noticed what I thought was some of the mucus plug coming out. Mm. Um, and I was like, I think this is what this is. And I'm, I'm really worried. Like I now in retrospect, um, now based on the way that my second pregnancy was treated, I should have just gone in, gone into triage and had them examine me because mm. there would have been things that they could have done at that point. Oh, no. So the, the mucus plug was coming out, I think, and they're like, well, that also can be normal. Those weeks that I started having Braxton Hicks contractions, mm. and again, that also can be normal yeah. at that point. So I'm like, okay, trying to like not freak out here. Like, Yeah, that happens a lot, right? So many things that happen to your body during pregnancy, right. like – 
normal yeah. pregnancy, normal pregnancy, but right. Yeah. Um, and so that week at 20, 22 weeks, I was like 22 and, and five actually 22 and five. So that morning I was at school, I was doing some testing on some students and went to the bathroom and noticed bright red blood and more than I would say would be spotting. And so I, I ended up mm. calling and I, you know, I'm like starting to get really upset. And I, I called and they're like, yep, yeah, we can get you in with your practitioner tomorrow. You know, do you want early in the morning or later? I said early first thing mm-hmm. again, in retrospect, I should have gone into triage, but because of the situation, I think, you know, it, I was, I was before 23, 24 weeks, which is when they, when they save babies. Um, uh, in the NICU. And so I'm getting very upset about this. You know, I am freaking out. My principal has to come in and kind of calm me down. And that night was actually um, uh, back to school night. So all the families came and things like that. So I went home. I I went home. I laid down on my bed and like, I'm starting to feel more Braxton Hicks and I'm not feeling well. I just said something is wrong. Mm. And um, I go back, I do back to school night and I put on my face and, you know, it's showtime and yeah. entertaining everybody and making them feel welcome. And everyone's congratulating me on my my pregnancy because I just announced to families that I was pregnant. And I got home and I just, I remember feeling the rolling, what I thought then were Braxton Hicks, but they were becoming contractions. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know what contractions yeah. felt like. I said, okay, right. well, it's too early for contractions. I, I truly had no idea. Yeah, of course. Um, it didn't make sense to me that I would actually be in labor. And so that next morning, my my husband and I, like, you know, got ready and I, I you know, we're eating cereal together and he took a separate car. I took a separate car because he's like, oh, I want to go with you. And because I was very nervous about it. So we went to the midwife yeah. um, and he was going to leave then afterwards. When we got to the uh, clinic, the first thing she was going to have me do was do a, a urine test. Mm-hmm. And so I went to go do the urine test. And that morning, I was still having that bright red blood, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And I went to do a urine test. And as I went to do the urine test, there was just a lot of blood down there. And oh, um, I, I was like, oh, my gosh. And so I came back. I'm shaking. My husband and I are walking back together. I just don't even like remember things. And so she said, okay, let me examine. She went in and did a speculum exam. Mm -hmm. And then she came out and I saw her face and it was so grave. And she just said, you need to get to triage right now. She said, your sac is bulging. So the amniotic sac was bulging through my cervix. Um, Mm -hmm. The amniotic sac was bulging through my cervix. And she's like, she's like, I can't, I don't want to touch anything in there, but she's like, this is, this is an emergency. You need to go. And so when you get news like that, when up until this point, you're just like, you know, I'm the, I'm a super fit, healthy person. And I just, I never even considered this. And it it was like the beginning of just on that day feeling just completely destroyed. So we, we took our separate cars, you know, my husband and I are just like, just totally, totally in shock. And so we go there, we drive, you know, I'm sitting like waiting on a bench, waiting for him to finish parking the car. And we walk in to triage and we get in and there's already a team that is assembling because I'm 22 Mm. and six at this point. Um, And they, at at this hospital, um, which is a like a level, I don't know what the highest level is of NICU, but they're, they're that they are level three or level four NICU. They weren't saving. 22 weekers 
Um, so mm. we c- come in, they do the exam, I'm, you know, I'm taking off, you know, my clothes, I'm bleeding on the floor. I'm like, was that my, my bag of waters? Like, did that break? They're like, no, it's just blood. And so they, they do the exam. And at that point I'm starting to have like more and more real contractions. I can feel them. It's happening really mm. fast. And it just felt like so much pressure, mm. so, so, so much pressure. And I'm sure anyone who's delivered a baby can identify, but, and I had started feeling that the night before too, just like pressure that was pushing, but this was even more pressure than my, with my son. It was the bag of waters that was bulging and just feeling like, you know, you have a whole bag that's just trying to go down a funnel essentially. So, um, at that point they brought me into delivery. Uh, they wheeled me up to delivery and then we had to have some really hard conversations. They brought in their neonatologists they brought in to talk with us. They brought in the perinatologists, so the specialists in high-risk pregnancy. Mm-hmm. They brought in grief counselor people. They asked, uh, they, they had someone come and counsel us about, you know, what do you want to do? Um, at this point, here mm-hmm. are your options. So the option was to deliver because I was in labor and I, I was, this was a train that we couldn't really stop. And so I could deliver and then, um, make that the choice then to just say goodbye and let uh, the baby pass peacefully. And um, the other option would be to try to take some medication, medication to stop the the contractions um, and try to prolong pregnancy as long as possible. And then I could also take magnesium uh, if I was giving, you know, birth to then try to, um, it's like a protective measure to help protect against cerebral palsy and some other things. And then prepare for a very, very long NICU journey. And so at this point, I just thought, we're not even at the point where this baby's viable. And they gave us these sheets with statistics. And basically it was like, there's a nine or I forget. Let me, let me quick check. Yeah. I saw you posted it on Facebook. Yeah, and we got them every every day, and so at twenty two wow. and six, they're like there's like a ninety some percent chance, a ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven that your baby is just going to die or be severely <sighs> impaired. So, so yeah, so they gave us a sheet that kind of outlined okay, sir, chance of survival, chance of survival yeah. without profound neuro, neurodevelopmental uh, impairment, survival without moderate to severe neurodevelopmental impairment. Um, and then the opposite. So death, the chance of death, the chance of her being severely or moderately impaired or just moderately uh, or profoundly impaired. And so it ended up there like when you kind of look at the whole risk, it was 78% chance if she was born on the day she was born that she was going to either die or be profoundly neurodevelopmentally impaired. And so here we're faced with this and his new parents and our life has just oh. completely changed. And, you know, yeah. there, there's not that many moments in your life where you're just like my whole course of my life could be different than I thought. And I didn't know not only like if I was strong enough to help a child through their death journey, but also the opposite to, you know, to help a child who, had these severe neuro- neurodevelopmental impairments. And I, you know, I was, I was terrified for me. And I didn't, I didn't know if that was what was best for her um, mm-hmm. too. Uh, you know, I mean, 
to try to help her to live and to suffer. So we wrestled with this and I, um, I was pretty convinced that we should let her pass and that we should let her go peacefully. And my pastor came and I'm not particularly religious anymore in my life, but I grew up uh, in the Presbyterian church and um, I have a very close relationship with this pastor. And so he came and he just, he sat with us and he prayed with us and he talked to my husband a little bit, who was not religious, but again, good relationship with this man. Mm -hmm. And it just made, made my husband think a little bit. It was just my parents' worst nightmare. They were traveling in Seattle. They were, they're on their way back, you know, they're flying back. This is happening. And she just said, she just, I just said, I just want you to think about like, just what, if you just try. And so he and I, we just cried together and we just, we decided, okay, all right, let's, he changed my mind. And I said, yeah, okay, let's do the medicine. And I thought, oh gosh, I hope it's not too late. And so anyway, so they gave us the medicine and my contraction stopped and, you know, um, things were uh, uh, getting a little bit better as far as that. I made it the next day and the next day and the perinatologists came in. They're like, well, we could do a cervical cerclage next time, next pregnancy, mm-hmm. uh, which is where they sew your cervix shut. And mm-hmm. they're like, if your child dies, at least this would be a gift to the next child, essentially, is that you have this knowledge now. But they couldn't do it because they couldn't risk pushing the amniotic sac back into my uterus. So we waited. And I went, eventually, they took me out of delivery and um, they put me into antepartum. And the goal was to try to stay there as long as possible. Mm-hmm. But you can only stay on these steroids to stop contractions for a certain amount of time. So when I got there that evening to antepartum, the contraction started again. And um, I knew that they were happening. I let my husband know. But that night as we tried to sleep, I could feel the contractions getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I just lay there and just took it. <laughs> just just quietly laying there, took those contractions. And, and I was took up to one of the monitors and one of the nurses was like, you're having some pretty big contractions. I mean, it shows that you are. Are you feeling this? And I'm like, yep. But I just, did, I just didn't want to get out of bed. I just didn't want to make it a reality. I was so hopeful that we were going to make it another couple of weeks. And we only had made it like a couple of days. We went in at 22 and six and this was 22 and three. The morning before we had just gotten a, uh, they did another ultrasound because they wanted to see how many grams is she. They estimated 540 grams, like every gram counts um, Mm. when you have a baby this small. Uh, we just, we had her pictures, her little ultrasound pictures all up around the room just to give us some hope. And yeah. um, I just, we had to pack up and they moved us back to delivery that night. And so then they started, they started magnesium. And I just, I just remember thinking like, how am I delivering? Like, how am I going through childbirth? Like, I'm not prepared. I haven't taken my classes. I'm a type A person. I was <laughs> yeah. signed up for classes. I haven't even got a tour of this hospital yet. Like I was supposed to tour this place and I haven't even done it. Like I just... I just was so bewildered. So my husband's family was there. My my parents were there. My mom and my dad and my husband, they all alternated holding my hand as they went through contractions. And then they started magnesium, which is that protective medicine mm-hmm. for a baby's brain. But it really is a, does a number on um, the mother. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, they inject it and feel like it's setting your brain on fire. I was sweaty and oh. vomity and just, I mean, it was, it was awful. And then you can't move at that point. You're a fall risk. Mm. And so I had to lay there. So anyway, so the contract, the contractions um, ended up coming swift enough that um, a nurse was like, I think they're coming fast enough. She's like, I think, I think you're going to deliver soon. And they had to assemble that NICU team super fast. So like when you deliver a baby that early, so I was 22 weeks, three days, when you deliver a baby that early, you have to assemble a, a team of everyone in the NICU. Basically you have neo, the neonatologist is there. You have nurses, you have the respiratory therapists, you have all the, you know, all of the attendings. Yeah. Everybody, everybody is there. Um, I think there were about 15 people plus the perinatologist plus, you know, like there's just so many people and otherwise I just, I delivered, I, I pushed through, you know, I mean, that sort of thing. Um, and Emmy was born on call. Um, so she was born in the amniotic sac. So oh, wow. I didn't, I looked and I thought, what the heck is that? <laughs> like, cause I couldn't see it. It didn't look like a baby. I mean, it, yeah. it's just, but um, instantly whisked away and went under their lamp and et- crowded around by a, a crowd of people while I'm, you know, finishing delivery. Yeah. And I, I can just kind of sense what's going on, but I'm, I'm not fully aware of it. And then they, they took her upstairs and I didn't, I didn't get to see her or really hear her or things like that. They had to intubate mm-hmm. her on the spot, you know, I mean, cause she can't breathe at 23 weeks. you the lungs are so underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. And they gave her steroids, things like that, to help expand the lungs. That's or they gave me steroids to help her expand mm-hmm. the lungs, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, and then we began our NICU journey. So then, you know, as after delivery, my husband stayed with me. You know, stayed there for a while. Uh, I wanted to shower. People were like, "Do you want to go up?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> I don't." <laughs> I think yeah. I was, I was stalling. I just, I wasn't ready to see. So, um, yeah, that was hard. So anyway, so, um, we went up and, um, this really kind nurse offered to take pictures. Um, but the first time I got to see her, I couldn't touch her, but we could look at her. And, um, she, she took pictures of it. And when I look at the picture, it's not the face of a mom that that was happy to see her child. It was heartbreak. Yeah. Um, I just didn't, I just felt so sad for her. I did not feel that outpouring of love that I, I, I thought I would experience with my, my children. And I, in retrospect, I, I don't feel guilty about it now because mm-hmm. it was honest. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's where I was. Um, yeah. So, so we sat with her in there. She's hooked up. She's in the isolate. She's under a bilirubin light. She's got these things over her eyes. She's um, She was born one pound, four ounces, 540 grams. And she was 11 and a half inches long. So about the size of a Barbie. And her eyes were still fused shut. She had red skin um, because they it's not developed. Um, kind of translucent so you can see through. It's just bone. I mean, there's no fat. So it's just bone. It doesn't look like this should work. <laughs> that, that, that there should be a living yeah. human in there. But there was. She was in there. 
So yeah, so then the next few days were kind of a blur. They call it the NICU roller coaster, especially with babies this small. They do really well for the first week where they're just kind of steady and then it just goes up and down and up and down. Things with blood pressure um, was just super high. Or, uh, super high. Mm. Then uh, her heart rate was just, I don't know, it was just insane, 190 beats per minute. I mean, all always. You know, she's getting um, um, blood transfusions. She's getting x-rays. She's got all these things happening. Wow. Just so many decisions as a, as a couple, like life or death decisions that we had to make um, that we felt in no way qualified to make. You know, we don't know anything about this. Uh, at one point we were, uh, we had to have a conversation. She had a grade one uh, interventricular hemorrhage. So she had a brain bleed. Grade one is the best of the brain bleeds. So, <laughs> but, but basically that um, the further up you go, the more of an impact it can have on their neurodevelopment. And so mm-hmm. a one actually had no increased risk of any sort of wow. impairment, which was wonderful. That was, I mean, good news, good news to get yeah. that. So a lot of, a lot of that over the next few days. And so we left the hospital. We stayed there for two days afterwards in postpartum. And leaving the hospital was so difficult. I, I just, I couldn't control it. I just shook. I just, mm-hmm. my whole body just shook. It's such an unnatural thing to leave your baby somewhere, especially in that state. It's just, I, I just, I just remember just my whole body just shaking and then sleeping apart. And we slept um, 103 nights. 102 nights because she was there 103 days, 102 nights away from her. And they said, well, you can, you can sleep there. And a lot of mothers do, but I just was like, this is, there's nothing I can do, especially those early days. I can't do anything. I could be by her. I was by her all day long, but I just was like, I, I need to take care of myself and everyone has their own, I just need to like go to sleep, but they had a camera and we would just have it on and we would just watch her at night and we would call in the middle of the night just to see how she was. You got to see like from your phone or yeah. something. There was like yeah, a yeah. connection. Oh, that's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. That was, they had just gotten that going actually like the week before we got there. And so uh, another strange thing is right after delivering again, it wasn't anticipating having a baby for another 20 weeks, you know? So yeah, um, 17 weeks. And so they, they um, immediately they're like, do you want to pump milk for your baby? I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, what you're talking about. So they hooked me up right away to pump milk. And so then I was on that pumping journey for a while, you know, pumping every two hours, yeah. pump parts, storing milk, storing way more milk than she could ever drink. Because at first they started out like, you know, every feeding was um, like a milliliter. I mean, her, t- her tummy yeah. was so small. So yeah. So then we got into a schedule. So we were, she was in the NICU for three and a half months, got into a schedule. I was up at 4.30 to pump in the morning, and then I would drive there so I could get there for 7 o'clock cares, mm. um, which is where they um, – they every, you know, three hours they would change diaper and do the feeding and uh, do that. I'd also be there – my husband and, uh, was there for the beginning part um, too, but um, for rounds every morning mm. so we could get an update on her. And then I would – I stayed there. So I up – up until that day, I worked as a teacher. And then I never went back. <laughs> I just, I, it was, I just couldn't, I couldn't work after that. I couldn't mentally go back to work after that. Yeah. Physically, I was okay. 
I recovered pretty fast. I mean, I wasn't that big. It, you know, she wasn't that big of a baby. So yeah, we got into this routine. So did you, you know, since she was born so early, yeah. I don't know how much of the baby things like of preparing your home yeah. and buying all the things, how much of that you had done yeah. while she was in the NICU. Did you, yeah. how did you feel about that? Did you continue doing those things and prepping or did you hold off? So we had gotten the crib a few weeks before. We had painted it in her room a few weeks before, gotten the chair and like a changing table, I think. But none none of like the like fine little touches of it, you know, I mean, um, Mm -hmm. kind of the decorative stuff of it. And no, we hadn't done those things. I hadn't, I think, I don't even know if we finished registering, you know, for a baby Um, shower. I think we had just started that process. And so just a lot of things that I grieved. I, you know, grieved first and foremost, the loss of, you know, just for her of experience being a baby loss of me having that newborn experience of being able to be skin to skin with my child. I didn't get to hold her till she was nine days old. And and it was like, she was Mm. intubated. They had to like, you know, like lean her up on my chest and go all the way back and nurses were there and she was wheezing. And I mean, it was just like terrifying, but yeah, just so much grief over that. And so even like the stuff like decorating was like, crap. Like I just, we, we don't even have, we don't have the stuff for her nursery. And so the thing about her being so little is, and I wasn't allowed to hold her for a lot of it is that, um, I had a lot of time to sit there and I just sat there and I would sing to her and read to her and I would blog and I would sit there and look into the void. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And drink a lot of coffee and pump and I would also, you know, pick stuff out for her. And, you know, it was kind of like my way of like keeping something positive of like a, a bright light of like, okay, I, I can't do much, but I can buy this picture for her, you know, or that sort of thing. I can think about that. And so that was kind of therapeutic. So yeah, the weeks, the weeks went on and she got stronger and bigger and my connection to her deepened, but it was still, you know, I mean, it was just still hard. If I'm being honest, it was just, yeah. it was, it was pretty hard. So she got extubated after about a month. Her eyes opened at around 29 weeks. We got to see things that a lot of parents don't get to see. She then went on a kind of like this nasal thing that they cut like this big trunk um, that helps them breathe. And then, then eventually she got onto the nasal cannula. She got to an open crib. So we're, we got to see milestones. We got to give her her first bath, things like that. And as we got closer to Christmas, um, then we started got, uh, meeting with ophthalmology. So um, babies that are born this early and have uh, oxygen um, are at risk for something called retinopathy of prematurity, mm-hmm. which is similar to retinopathy, like diabetic retinopathy, where retinopathy of prematurity is when the eyes, the um, blood vessels in the eyes, they reach a ridge around uh, the eye and then they they stop growing out they mm. they they are blocked and so then they start pulling on the macula on the back of the eye and they can lead to blindness mm. uh, so it can pull away and you can have retinal detachment and um, very serious and you know it's like Stevie Wonder yeah uh, was a preemie he has retinopathy of prematurity so I did not know that about him yeah so that. that's why he is blind so. Oh, yeah. So they've come a long way, though, in how they treated it since the 50s when Stevie Wonder was born. And he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't a micro preemie like Emmy. But mm. so we started hearing she had stage one, 
which is the earliest stage. Then she had stage two, then she had stage three. And then it was, which was like, oh, she's probably going to need glasses. And then if it gets any worse, we need to um, think about some options for her because this it's starting to pull. And so she ended up having stage uh, three plus. And so they were like, plus disease means that um, that we needed to um, operate. So she ended up having an operation on her right eye first and then her left eye. No, left eye first and then her right eye. Right eye, Left eye was in the mm-hmm. hospital. Right eye was once we had been discharged. Mm which has some implications then later on for her. But as we approached the end of our, our stay, we, you know, she got stronger with feeding. I got to try breastfeeding with her, which was a, a, a huge joy. So that went well. Yeah. I mean, it took time. I mean, it, they, they had to learn it. So the sucks while a breathe is yeah. not in, you know, developed and they can't take much by mouth. And so, you know, she still was on the nasal tube, the gavage tube, and then we did bottle feeds and then we did breastfeeding. So then on January 12th, she was discharged. Um, she was big enough. She was, you know, about seven pounds and she was strong enough and we were ready to take her home. And so we got, we got to take her home and that was just the best feeling in the world. We were, we were so ready. Mm-hmm. We, we had cared for her every day, you know, and now having a almost, I mean, a term baby, an early term baby, taking him home right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having him be three and a half months old, four months old, you realize like, holy cow, that was a long time. Yeah. It was a really long time to, to be in the NICU. That was for, it just felt like forever. So yeah. And so then we were home and uh, she, we had to come home on oxygen. She, she was on oxygen for about a month and a half and then was done with that. She had a series of specialists over the next year that kind of were dismissed over time. So, uh, you know, a nephrologist, a urologist, the pulmonologist was dismissed. Like we had all these ologists that like to track her, um, <laughs> but she was dismissed by pretty much all of them, except the ophthalmologist. That guy's our friend for life. So, <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's great. That's great news that she really, she's, she's a fighter. fighter. She's a strong she just, will. And it's, it's, we were discovering yeah. that in toddlerhood as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so then we got we just we just got to bring her home, and um, that NICU journey was over. Yeah, when you brought her home on that day, because you know she still had the oxygen and everything. Were you at all concerned about like how am I? Can I take care of this little thing? Like, are yeah. you sure she's good? Or well, no, definitely you were overwhelming. Like- so, so I mean, so mm. they have this huge pump or like this huge like unit for the oxygen and anyone who's had a baby on oxygen mm. knows it's louder than heck it's you're hooked Ugh. up to tubes very mm-hmm. very loud and then she was on a monitor that monitored her pulse oxygen level and would go off mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and terrify everyone i mean it was just because it like would slip off her oh. tiny little barbie feet mm. so yeah there's some some doubt about it but we were just we just needed to get the heck out of there we just wanted to have our our life back at home but yeah we were very scared of her catching an illness and so now in the pandemic it's like we, oh, we yeah. um isolated from public from january until may because we didn't the big thing was like she should not get rsv with her, you know she's mm-hmm. on oxygen she's got uh, chronic lung disease she should not get rsv she could die and so we're like oh okay so we you know again things that you grieve when your experience is vastly different from what you imagine yeah grieving like just sharing your baby with the people that you love 
right? And um, not a lot of people got to meet our baby early on. Uh, not a lot of people got to meet Emmy. Yeah. But it ended up being all right. Hi, Momversations listeners. We believe that mom's voices are powerful and need to be heard. As moms, we also know that so much of what we go through is veiled in secrecy in our society. As a result, too many women suffer in silence. And that's just with the all-too-common issues like miscarriage, infertility, lactation, depression, and anxiety. We also know that many moms in our very own country are dying in childbirth because of racial bias. Moms are being separated from their children against their will, and women who are not yet ready to become mothers are forced to carry pregnancies to term. If you want to be a part of the Momversations Project, we hope you'll consider backing our Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. Every dollar raised there goes to paying parent artists for their work on this project. And we've got some pretty great perks available at every funding level. Just type bit.ly slash f-u-n-d moms. That's bit.ly slash fund moms. Or head to womenstheaterfestival.com slash momversations. Or simply grab the link in the show notes. When we bring this dialogue to center stage, we have the opportunity to change lives to save lives. She got home and, you know, things things were going well. She was on oxygen, but things were going well enough. But there's some some real like repercussions of trauma that that sort of thing. So a baby born that early, like she came home 2 weeks before her due date. She was three and a half months at that point, but she doesn't, she wasn't like a three and a half month year old. Um, uh, She was Mm -hmm. like a newborn. When you're born that prematurely or even like at 32 weeks, they adjust Mm -hmm. your, their age for the expectation of what they can, you know, should be able to do with milestones. So, right. So she wasn't going to be, she wasn't going to be smiling or rolling over, you know, when she came home, she was, you know, just a newborn essentially. But the, that's another part of like the the grief of having such a, a, a premature infant is that adjustment of their age, and it's you're constantly you know how old's your baby? And you're like, oh, and you let it slip. They're like, oh, they're four months. Like what? Nobody ever has meant anything mean by it. But I'm just I was always very conscious of that. You know, oh, she's nine months. Really? She's tiny, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. and and you know, uh, one time I totally lost lost myself. I was like, she was just before a year. She's pulling up to standing, eight months adjusted or seven months adjusted, and um, I was so proud of her, right? And but she was almost a year old, 11, 11 months, and so I had said like, oh, somebody asked, oh, how's your baby? What's she up to now? I said, oh, she just pulled up to standing, and she's like, how old is she? She's eleven months. They're like, well, babies all do things in their own time, and I'm like. You have no idea. Like, no, it's it's, it's okay. Like, this is supposed to happen like that, you know. Um, so just that. Right. It's like, no, this is exciting. <laughs> like, she's, right. she's actually, yeah. you know. And so then it was like, do I say her adjusted age? Do I say her real age? And part of I that was part of my my healing process was just being like, yep, you can deal with whatever 
discrepancy in your expectation is, but like, I am just going to live my life very honestly. And I am not going to worry about what other people might think. But I, there was other repercussions of trauma, like um, a lot of pressure to help her reach her milestones, which is silly now. I mean, now knowing what mm. you know, I know about like just child development. There's not a whole lot you can do, but they're like, they're going to reach it when they reach it. Babies are the way that they are. But um, an enormous amount of pressure I just felt to like help her and be vigilant and watch out for anything. Mm. Because um, as, you know, as those sheets told me, there's a huge chance that she could be moderately or severely, you know, profoundly in neurodevelopmentally impaired, uh, neurologically impaired. And so. So is that always kind of in the back of your mind after oh, you yes. got her home and everything? Oh, still? yeah. So, oh, wow. okay. so just, it stole some of my joy a yeah. little bit. Um, yeah. Because I just, I worried about it a lot in my heart. But eventually, um, I stopped worrying about it. I, she, she, she was reaching milestones. I think that helped. Um, but also, Mayron mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. you know, back when we made that decision, and we we at first doubted if we were strong enough to take care of a child if they had severe needs, things like that. But we made up our decision, whatever she was, whoever she was, we were going to love her and we could do it. And I don't judge any woman or family for making a different decision because at that point they, you know, they give you a choice. Uh, or if your baby's born at 28 weeks or 26 weeks, even like they just save your baby. But at 23 weeks, they're like, you have a choice. And so we had, we had made our choice and that was it. And we hoped it was the right one. And, and at that point, no matter what our outcome was, it was, you know, the right one. Yeah. It was going to be the right one, whether she passed away in the hospital or she had some impairment. So, or if she turned out as a typical uh, developing child. So we had no idea. And uh, she just would, for all of her adjusted age stuff, she would hit her milestones. And so she was doing okay. And so, um, yeah, she just grew and grew. And she um, she had some issues with feeding and things like that. She, uh, we believe with the intubation, it was hard for her to take a large amount of food. And she's yeah. mm-hmm. always been such a tiny little peanut. She's three years old and about 25 pounds. I mean, she's, she's petite. She's not one of those big old babies you see running around. Eventually, like the uh, we have birth to three in Wisconsin, um, which is a program for at-risk kids for developmental problems. And she was monitored for a year. They dismissed her because they couldn't find anything. And then she's monitored with um, this place called the Wiseman Center here um, in Madison, which is another clinic mm-hmm. up until three years old, and was recently assessed that she was meeting or exceeding all of her milestones in every domain for physical, cognitive, and language and all that. So so she's it, uh, language in particular has been remarkable. So she's that's her thing. So that that to us was, you know, it it's great news and it's wonderful. Um, but again, we were prepared. Yeah. I mean, whatever. I mean, what whoever she was, we were prepared to to just just love the child that we had. So Yeah. Must have been a relief oh. though, to know that she's doing okay. I mean, against, against all, all odds, odds. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And yeah, it, it absolutely is. It is just like a wonderful celebration uh, and just a joy and just a blessing to, to, to know that. So at what point in this journey would you say you, you felt like a mom, like the, for the first time you thought this is being a mom. 
that's a good question. I'm, there were different stages of it for me. It came in waves. Um, I did not feel like a mom instantly. Didn't, didn't feel like much of anything. I felt like a zombie, Hmm. but, um, I remember getting to hold her for the first time at nine days and it didn't feel like I thought, but I, I felt this overwhelming flood of emotions, terror among them, um, to touch her Hmm. like that. I mean, I could, I could put my hands on, they called it a, um, what's a hand hug where you like touch the top of their head and their bottom of their feet and give a little bit of pressure. And that's like comforting to them, or you put their arms to, to center. The occupational therapist kind of tell you to do that to help center them. Uh, otherwise, you know, I learned early on that touch, they, any other touch on their body, they, they interpret as pain. So mm. that just broke my heart. Um, so holding her, so like not like strokes or anything, like just holding her, that was though, um, that was kind of an emotional moment where I felt like, oh, I could be, or I am, I identified a little bit with being a mom. But in the NICU, being there, I would go and I would sit with her on my chest for three hours a day doing uh, K-care, kangaroo care. So there's all these studies Mm -hmm. out there that show the benefits of um, kangaroo care, skin to skin. You know, I had at that point left my job to be a full-time NICU parent. Um, And so I would do kangaroo care with her every single day for three hours. And I would just lay there with her on me. And that felt not like typical motherhood, but that felt like motherhood to me. Mm-hmm. But then being home and, you know, she had so many appointments early on and things like that. I, I just felt like, okay, like now, now once we were home, it just felt like, okay, now it's me. I get to be in charge of her, her schedule, which is not even true. I mean, they're in charge of their schedule when they're that little, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, where I just felt like, okay, this is, she's totally mine. So bringing her home was another wave of that. Yeah. So how did that whole experience affect your decision to have a second child? Well, actually, when I was in the, uh, she was in the NICU, I got a consult with perinatology and just said, okay, what it like, you know, is it possible for me to have children in the future? Is there, is this always going to happen? So um, what I had was something called cervical incompetence or cervical incompetence, which is like <laughs> ridiculous. Incompetent cervix. I don't know why it's incompetent, but or insu- <laughs> insufficient cervix. It's like, again, something for like a type A perfectionist like me to be have something to label incompetent on you just rubs me the wrong way. Mm. Um, but insufficient cervix. Mm-hmm. So basically my cervix is not strong enough to hold in a baby. And so what happens is it shortens prematurely. And so normally it should be about three inches long for most of pregnancy or longer at certain points, but pretty long. And it shortened too soon. And then um, it can't, it can't withhold the weight. So as the uterus gets heavy, the baby gets heavier, it just, they can't hold it in. And so women over the course of history have had this, about 1% of women they think have it, had this. And um, before modern medicine, I mean, I, I would have been just a woman who would have constantly lost babies mm. very early because I just couldn't um, keep them in. And so it's hard to detect that somebody has insufficient cervix. Some doctors are kind of hesitant to do it, but uh, to give the diagnosis, because it's hard to really pinpoint if that's what it is. But some mm. of the signs of it are that you um, you have no contractions, no pain, uh, really. You're kind of silently dilating. And then all of a sudden, 
the baby's there. I mean, it's like it just happens so fast. You're not expecting it. And because mine was dilating early, I um, partially uh, separated um, amniotic sac, which is why it was going into the cervix, Mm. into the vaginal canal. So anyways, so I met with them and just said, hey, like I have insufficient cervix like what's, what are my options? And they said, well, um, you could do a cerclage or you could just monitor the next pregnancy. And then if there was an issue, you could do a, a rescue cerclage. So uh, preventative cerclage, uh, does, is done at 14 weeks in pregnancy and has a, uh, I forget what the, it's like a 985, 90% success rate at getting a baby further than you got before, at least to viability, right? It's not to term, yeah. um, uh, if not to term or a rescue cerclage, which is less effective. So, you know what, we weren't in a rush because um, we were just, you know, one, we were just loving being parents to Emmy. Um, she's just an awesome kid. Um, and also we were terrified too of the next step and, you know, how that changed our family and, and just of things going wrong. Yeah. But we kind of, you know, I'd gone off birth control and just kind of took the approach like, whatever happens, happens. My type A person is in the backseat. And um, again, pretty quickly got pregnant. So um, again, getting pregnant wasn't the problem. Um, it was staying pregnant, which was the problem. And so I uh, got pregnant and we were super thrilled, but it, it still never, it didn't really um, sink in actually for quite a while uh, throughout mm-hmm. my pregnancy. I didn't um, feel like I allowed myself to be truly excited probably as some sort of protective mechanism mm-hmm. for myself um, because of the trauma that I experienced. Yeah. Um, went in and did the cervical cerclage. Um, and I, my approach to it wasn't to think about it too much, um, to go into it. What they do is then they tie um, this, this cord around and this, it's not nylon, but they basically tie it around the cervix and they do the special knot or whatever, and then they snip it and, and then it holds. And so it was done and it was, it was, you know, actually all in all, despite my discomfort with it, it was not the, it was not the worst thing in the world. Um, and after that, it was just like, okay, I, I felt a little bit of relief, like, okay, there's something holding this baby in, but I was still terrified. It was a lot of anxiety during the pregnancy, but yeah. So then they, they take it out at 37 weeks because at that point you're early term, you've made it to term. It's still mm-hmm. early. Some people will be like, mm-hmm. my baby was born three weeks early. Like, you know, and like, that's like, it, it, and I get it to them. It's a big deal to me. I was like, three weeks early, try 17, <laughs> like, you know, and it's all relative. I mean, I was like, ah, that baby's, that baby's fully cooked, but they mm-hmm. took it out very, it was just not, it didn't feel good. It was a bit painful. Is that just like an outpatient thing? They just kind of is it was it similar to the way it went in? They totally no, totally easier. It's just speculum, oh, okay. and they they come in, they do a little snip snip, oh they great, break it, and then they take it out, and that's it. But you could you know deliver that day, or you could you mm. could go to forty one weeks at that point. You know, if there's really no there's no telling. Yeah, yeah. And so I after they took it out, they're like, okay, you're two centimeters dilated already. You know, let us know how it goes. And then two days later, then I went into labor with Milo. So, and I sensed it and I was like, okay, I know what this is. I have mama sense is telling me, I know what this is this time. So yeah. And it was completely, um, completely different than my first experience. 
We went in, he had a, a four bag. So bag had fallen down and was kind of leaking a little bit, he, but it fell, it fell down on itself. And so it was just leaking out a little bit. So they ended up inducing me a little bit. So mm -hmm. I was already in labor, but they ended up giving me some um, Pitocin to speed it along. Delivered a few hours later, got to hold him, put him on my chest. I got to start breastfeeding right away. We got to delay the cord. You know, we got to, you know, room in with him and leave the next day. I mean, it was just, it was easy. It was exactly what I had imagined with, you know, delivering children. So, so yeah, I was very yeah. grateful for a much smoother experience. Yeah, that sounds like it was yeah. <laughs> much smoother. Um, and knowing a little something about what was going on too, I think is helpful. Yeah. Definitely. Totally. Knowledge is knowledge is really powerful. Both knowledge about your own body and just knowledge about you know, I, I kind of always have described that like women have this kind of this um, wisdom about their own bodies, but also there's like a power in other women getting together and, and sharing about, you know, experiences like this and, and um just about childbirth and things like that to, to kind of have an idea of, of what this is. I mean, I feel like women have been doing this for millennia, you know, I mean, they get together and that's, that's how they know what to expect with yeah. birth, you know, I mean, it's this huge thing. And we don't do that enough, you know, right. anymore. We really don't. Right. You know, which is part of what this project is totally. about. Right? <laughs> to talk about it because we, we don't. don't. Yeah. Would you say there's something else, maybe even surprisingly hard about being a mom? Hmm. Well, it, being a mom is your heart outside of your body, you know? I mean, it's loving somebody so much and they're not part of your body anymore. I mean, it's just totally, they're, they're just totally outside of you. And so, so, uh, you know, times when they struggle, you know, that's, it, it, you know, you struggle, you know? Um, so I think that that part to me is the hardest part about being a mom is that you can't, for somebody who loves control and things like that, you just don't, you don't have it. You don't, you don't have it. You, not even the illusion of control yeah. with your children. So what would you say is the best part about being a mom? Maybe even surprisingly so. You get to be someone's number one, right? Like someone's everything. Um, it's like a, such a selfish thing, but like, but like to, to, it made me sound selfish. I have no idea, but, but I am, I am that for somebody. I get to be that for somebody, you know, I mean, I get to be the person that they need. Um, and I get to be, I get to, to be a part of some human's life in that role that as they're little, I get to experience that. But then when they're adults too, like I'll have always been that role to them. And maybe because I have such a positive relationship with my own mother, but it just seems really sacred to me that I get to be a mom. Yeah. I get to yeah. be one. And I just, I just love it. Well, Katie, it has been so awesome chatting with you. Thank you for taking yeah. some time and sharing your story with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for reaching out. And I'm glad to, glad to chat about it. Thanks for being a part of the Momversation. The Momversations Project is National Women's Theater Festival's first company-created, multi-format work generated by, with, and for mothers. For more information or to get involved with the Momversations Project and the National Women's Theater Festival, 
head to www.womenstheaterfestival.com. The goals of the Momversations Project include centering the stories and tough conversations surrounding motherhood today, deepening community connections among mothers, creating emotional connections to and motivating civic action surrounding reproductive justice and health issues, and improving public health outcomes for women and all birthing persons. The Momversations Project is helmed by NWTF Executive Artistic Director Johanna Maynard Edwards, that's me, in collaboration with Molly Clausen, Ilionette Bernabal, Sarah Johnson, and Emily Boyd Dahab, along with producers Kristen Ryan and Hannah Williams. We are proud to provide paid opportunities for mother artists to create work while honoring their family and other commitments. 